And hello, we are live for critical Q&A number 309. Let me, looks like sound is good and video is good. Good morning. And let's get you over to the chat window there. We can see you guys' chats coming up. Excellent. I am doing good today. Uh, you can see I am here uh, flying solo. Mel has some uh, other things she is doing this Sunday. She's got some personal stuff she's working on. So, excuse me. So, I am here and uh, we are going to do a Q&A show. Hello, everybody. Uh, live from Denver. It is Sunday morning. <laughs> and hey, Ohio. Hey, Henny. All right. Good morning, Tigiak. Yes, exactly. Okay, good. So we are, uh, so we are here. Oh wow, Dublin, Ireland, excellent. Uh, what a week! What a wild uh, times we are living in. Of course, I hope. Uh, yeah, seven p.m. over in other places in the world. I hope that you guys have uh, had a chance to, or will uh, have a chance to check out my podcast that I posted yesterday. It is a uh, gratitude week here on the critical on, on, on my Chris Shelton channel uh, with the podcast, the critical conversation show we did this week. Also talked about perspective, you know, maintaining perspective, keeping. Uh, our eye on the bigger picture and not letting ourselves get sucked into the minutiae and awfulness of things that can that can kind of mess up our whole day, ruin our week, whatever. Um, hey, Vancouver, Canada. Excellent. The Netherlands. Oh, this is great. So, uh, yeah, I'm trying. I don't know if you guys have, have sort of noticed over time that this has sort of settled into about every... Every four to five weeks or so, I try to do a live Q&A show, and, it's, and it seems a little sporadic. I just sort of go with my feelings on it, you know, because um, it's not really that, you know, hard to just shoot the show and, and, and put it up without doing live. But I like to interact with you guys and give everybody a chance to, to throw questions at me, you know, sort of spontaneously or randomly. Um. Yeah, grateful for being able to live large in Denver. That's exactly right. <laughs> and it is beautiful this uh, these last couple days here in Denver. It has been gorgeous, clear skies. Uh, guess we're having snow again this week, though. Like, days of it. So, whatever. You know, it's, it's so bipolar here. I, I don't know that we're going to be inundated with snow. I think they were talking about kind of the wet, slushy kind that melts off really quick. But that's going to be our... Um, that's going to be our week this week. Ugh. And you can see I've activated the TV here behind me. I um, used it. I've got a little logo thing for my podcast when I'm on with that. And, and I just put this together really quickly this morning. It'll probably change. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, anyway, so there we go. So good. Questions are now starting to roll in, uh, which is exactly the point of this show is for me to uh, answer your questions here. I will try to get to all of these and not miss them as we go. Raymond uh, Vanderstelt asks, is Scientology TV making some impact? Not that I'm aware of. I haven't seen one iota of proof or evidence that Scientology is growing or even uh, reducing the toxicity of its of its public image with Scientology TV. It's you know people can turn it on and watch it and see that it's so obviously propaganda 
and that Scientology from all of our testimonials and information and knowledge about it is so, you know, toxic and destructive and abusive to people that they don't really buy into the Scientology TV messaging as far as I can tell. There hasn't really been any any real impact that I can see. Now, of course, I am not, pre- I don't, you know, have access to the church's internal statistics anymore so you know maybe they do things on that channel that that registers on their radar somehow um but i think we would be hearing a lot more about it if they did scientology is really into and scientologists are very much into pumping what's working because so few of the things in that outfit actually do work you know uh, especially when it comes to getting people in All right, Christina asks, I'm dying to know what you think about Jason Lee being so quiet when he left. Um, You know, there are people who leave. uh, Jason Lee, of course, is a celebrity. He was in Mallrats and he had his own TV show. And he um, has been featured in lots of different things. And I guess he was also a professional level um, skateboarder. Anyway, Jason Lee's a real cool guy. He... um, uh, left Scientology, moved to Texas, I guess, and is living down there doing whatever he's doing. And, um, you know, some people don't leave spectacularly. Some people just kind of want to fade away, let it go, move on. And I guess that's, you know, Jason's approach on this. I don't know a whole lot about the guy personally, just the, you know, a little bit of professional information I have about him. So it's all I can kind of say about that, unless there's something more specific you have a question about on that. Um, oh, yes, Shimoda. Yes, you are very welcome. I, I want to get more uh, interaction with my European audience. So try to time these things out for that. Um, oh, Blanket, Blank Bullet asks, I would love to hear your thoughts on the language cults use to manipulate people and influence their thought process. Yeah, I've talked about this quite a bit with uh, videos on thought-stopping cliches and loaded language. Every group, uh, almost every group to one kind or another, develops some kind of special language or slanguage or, you know, words and, 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 and ideas that they express, you know, that are specific to that activity. Loaded language is, a method, is, a, is one of the tools of thought reform, according to Robert J. Lifton's excellent book on thought reform and the psychology of totalism. And what that means is not just having some specialized language or slanguage. Uh, loaded language is where you are actually redefining terms or introducing new terms that create mindsets or get people acting or thinking along certain lines or in certain modes of thinking that establishes or changes or modifies relationships or the power dynamic of relationships. For example, uh, calling L. Ron Hubbard source or even calling ministers or priests father. It introduces a familial language into a situation that is not a family, but it's made out to be like a family, right? Or, you know, like I said, with L. Ron Hubbard and Source, you have this individual, this man, this person, the very fallible human being who is now um, labeled and thought of as a source of knowledge and truth, which, of course, you know, human beings can originate or comment on or talk about truth, 
but they're not the source of truth. <laughs> they're not the ones who are coming up with this knowledge as though it's never existed before. It, you know what I mean? There's a little, you know, it changes. It changes the idea and it changes the positioning and it changes the power of uh, of people. And that's just one example. There's many, many, many examples of this thought-stopping cliches, stuff like that. So, um, so there's, you know, stuff like that. Uh, I guess I could comment on a little bit there. Um, let's see. Weather's all over. Okay, Shimoda asks, if I was to write a science fiction book based on the Xenu story, how would Scientology sue me without also disclosing that they really believe it or that it's their material? Well, they would. You know, this has already been uh, read into court documents and records in the 1980s. Uh, Hubbard's affirmations far more damaging than the Xenu story is Hubbard's affirmations. And those have been read into the court record and are a matter of public record and knowledge. Um, and, church, and the church acknowledging that those were actually the writings of L. Ron Hubbard. So, um, you know, if you're going to, it's it, it, in a court situation, they have to present it and they have presented it and said, this is our stuff. They did this with all the OT5, New Era Dianetics for OTs material too, which was a, which is the subject of a lawsuit, a series of lawsuits involving the Advanced Ability Center and David Mayo in the mid-1980s after he left Scientology and started his own group. So, so these battles have actually already happened in the courts and um, to varying outcomes and, and consequences. But um, if you were to write that science fiction story, you would actually be um, probably infringing on Hubbard's screenplay, Revolt in the Stars. And that creative copyrighted material... Uh, which is which was L. Ron Hubbard's creation is probably the basis that they would go after you. So they wouldn't even have to pull out the Xenu confidential scriptures. They could just pull out that Revolt in the Stars screenplay that Hubbard wrote and uh, and sue you based on that. So uh, okay. Oh yeah, Jason Lee. Yeah, cool. Is up in Texas. That's right. Real nice guy. I'm sure that that is true. I'm sure he's a wonderfully nice person. Um. Who's flying the DC space plane? <laughs> okay, Shimoda, thank you. Um, okay. Oh, okay, Henny. Okay, hard question. Uh, how is it possible to care for an abuser? Here's the first things that are that are popping into my mind, Henny. And you're this is a very you know you're asking me kind of broadly here, so I'm going to just throw out a broad kind of answer, and we can drill down into details if needed. Um, and this was actually something that was covered in my uni studies recently, as we um, uh, Dr. Uh, Jelly uh, Jenkins, um, uh, not Jelly, what uh, anyway, I Jenkins, Dr. Jenkins. Um, is a UK counselor, and she has put together a program that is a, it's a sort of a full-time program for recovery. And she talks about how, from a psychiatric or psychological perspective, you know, you can eschew, you don't have to use perpetrator, abuser, victim-type labels when you're dealing with somebody, the individual in front of you. Every single person is different. They have their own story. They have their own background. They have their own reasoning and motivations and intentions and goals and purposes. And 
Uh, not everybody who engages in abusive activity against others does so because they are basically evil, black-hearted bastards. There is a cycle of abuse. There are, um, you know, there's genetics involved in this, and there are also carrying on the cycle of family, familial abuse, where the father abuses the kids, the kids grow up in this abusive situation, both daughters and sons, and then perpetuate that abuse with their own kids. And this, you know, is sort of a behavior or uh, epigenetic factor to how abuse is enabled and continued generation to generation to generation. Now, none of this is, an is these are explanatory things. These are not a matter of trying to give abusers a pass or excuse the behavior. It's a matter of explaining the behavior, understanding the behavior so that we can do something about it. Um, when you understand the multi-generational aspect of, of how a person can be abused and then become an abuser and that cycle just perpetuates, then you um, can understand how uh, you the labels of abuser and victim kind of are a little malleable, a little liquid, you know, depending on how you're looking at it, right? Um, then there are people who are born who we just don't really understand, who, who, who seem fascinated with death and torture and pain and um, seem to lack empathy, seem to lack an ability to, to have compassion for others. We use labels like sociopath, narcissist, psychopath, serial killers, you know, in the making, these whole things, that whole little body of knowledge. And, and we don't have all that figured out yet. So, um, so in terms of, you know, how is it possible to care for an abuser? Well, it's possible to care at a human level, I guess is kind of what I'm trying to say, is they are human beings. There are, you know, we, we, we certainly look at the behavior of some people and think, oh, my God, this person is just inhuman. It's not that this person's a monster. They're not even human. And fair enough. I mean, I, I get that. You know, there are some really bad, awful people out there. But when you look at... You know, did they were they born that way? Did they come out of the womb ready to kill with knives in hand, or did something happen to per, you know to perhaps uh, modify this person's basic personality, or did you know or did they suffer a, a great degree of trauma and stress and abuse in their childhood before they were ready for any of that, or were able to you know to think their way through it? So, anyway, it's kind of that sort of sort of trope, you know. And I don't know that that's um, you know a wonderful answer. It's just you know, kind of how, how people are. And, um, and that's the only way I'm ever able myself to think through having any degree of compassion or, you know, understanding for abusive, horrible, awful people is, you know, I can see how, um, certain things in David Miscavige's childhood, for example, and life, and certainly under L. Ron Hubbard's influence, could have made him the person that he is. Not an excuse. It, it doesn't give him a pass at all. You know, David Miscavige is still a horrible person for beating on people and taking advantage of them and abusing them. Um, but if we can understand that, then maybe we can prevent, the, you know, future David Miscavige's is sort of how I'm, I'm thinking about it. Okay. Um, 
Jason, uh, somebody speak it. Oh, sure, Christina. Okay, she says, I only asked about Jason Lee because Leah Ramini, right, holds a strong opinion about the obligation of celebrities to speak out when they leave and didn't know if you thought the same. Yeah, no, I do. I, you know, I understand that, that people are different and they're going to have different reactions to it. But so I'm not going to sit here and judge people. But <laughs> inside, I'm judgy. Of course I am, right? I would I I think he should speak up and speak out about his experiences with Scientology so as to help people understand that it's not a great group. I have no idea what his experience in the church was because he hasn't said a whole lot about it. Maybe it was a really boring experience and he didn't really have a whole lot of horrible things happen to him. Or he just stepped up and stepped out because he got sick and tired of being, you know, financially pillaged or something, but there wasn't particularly anything else happening. I, you know, who knows? Who knows what his story is or what his reasons are for not speaking up. But I think that people in the public eye, public figures like celebrities, definitely should. And I wish he would. Um, lacking any knowledge about why he's not, I can't really comment on it a whole lot more than that. But I do agree with Leah's general point that, you know, we, we should be speaking up if we can't. Uh, okay, Gabriel asks, Hi, Chris, do you know if any orgs in Canada are closed to any of their public? Um, I don't think so now, but I think I think during COVID that was a possibility or that was happening. I did not specifically hear about Canadian orgs shutting down, but I heard about a lot of American orgs shutting down, boarding up, closing their windows. I know that happened in Portland. I heard Kansas City, Los Angeles. Um, maybe Orange County, I'm sort of thinking, maybe. So, you know, so I know some churches did shut down for a while. Um, I don't know if they were totally closed or if they were only letting some people in, but that's, that's all I know about that, actually. Uh, Dave H. asks, are Scientologists aware of the fact that Hubbard was a chronic alcoholic who was on heavy pain meds and died in a motorhome. How are the last 10 years of his life portrayed within Scientology? No, it's very simple, Simon, in the world of Scientology. Hubbard's whole biography has been rewritten. I mean, it's a very different thing inside Scientology, what they think about L. Ron Hubbard in his life. They have a whole, and it's called, by the way, there's a word for this, because it's, it, it's not just in Scientology that they have rewritten the biography of their founder, their religious leader. This is called a hagiography, and that's a word that, that academics use for the created or revised biography of a spiritual or religious leader or figure. And so Hubbard's hagiography is very different from the reality of things. And the people who go into Scientology learn all about Hubbard's hagiography. By the way, that's not a word Scientologists use. They call it his biography or his life story, just like anybody else would, okay? But this is the academic term for it. And, um, as far as the alcoholism and the running off and dying in a motorhome, no, they don't. That's not the story that gets told. What they are told is that Hubbard went off to do spiritual research, and he had to get away from all the nonsense and clutter and noise and and the the the, the conspiracies 
uh, of, of government agencies that were after him and were after Scientology. Remember, conspiracy theories are huge in Scientology, and Hubbard weaved this whole mythology around himself and around the subject of Scientology that the CIA, FBI, uh, Interpol, other uh, intelligence agencies, MI5, etc., were actively pursuing and investigating him and Scientology because, Hubbard said, they, Scientology has the only workable mental technology in existence and the only way to um, pump up and, and uh, rehabilitate your spiritual abilities. And this includes telepathy and telekinesis and, you know, precognition and all kinds of spiritual ESP-type powers. This is not emphasized heavily, but it's always there. There's always this subtext of this in the world of Scientology. So, and Scientologists get rather excited about these possibilities of being able to achieve these states, you know, spiritual immortality and, and all of that. So, um, they want to believe, in other words, they're motivated to believe that Hubbard did achieve these states and did achieve these powers, and so they cannot let themselves believe that he was an alcoholic drug abuser who died in a ditch, right? They can't, they can't go there with any of that. So they reject that whole narrative out of hand and go with the church's narrative, which is that Hubbard knew from a very young age that he was going to be salvaging mankind and saving the world. And that that was his mission in life, and he was a real go-getter and working on that all the whole time. He was researching and writing and discovering all this crap about the mind, and um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of the story they tell about that. And uh, yeah, of course they do. You know? Okay, um, let's see here. Um, ha, okay, Christina is saying, we'll have to know what you're going to do with your master's degree. Uh, let me roll back up here. Oh, thank you for that super chat, CNC97. Really appreciate that. Um, if we can ever collaborate on work or research. I, well, I don't know, Christina, about collaborating. I am not sure yet exactly what I'm going to do with that degree, except um, try to use it to open some doors and, um, and get the word about what I talk about and what I'm trying to educate the world in general about, hoping that that will get me more recognition and more ability to um, be taken a little more seriously about some of the stuff I'm talking about. Uh, as far as research goes, there's a lot of different directions I could go in with that. I, you know, I doubt, I doubt that I'm going to pursue a doctorate at this point. That's not, um, a goal that I'm, that I have. It's sort of like a possibility, but not something I'm really looking at doing. So we'll see. We'll see where I go with this. Um, Henny, I get it. Henny is saying I'm having a very hard time caring for my abuser while keeping myself mentally healthy. It's taking an excruciating emotional toll on my well-being. Henny, I get that. And if there is any way, and if you want to email me, by the way, we can chat about this, you know, privately. Um, if there is any way that you can put time or distance or space between you and an abusive situation, then it is always, you know, good to do that. You know, it's not required that you care for people who are abusing you 
at all. And if you can remove toxic influences or abusive influences from your life, then uh, then that's a good idea to do. You know, if you can handle it, sort it out so that it doesn't have to do that. Well, that's good too. It all depends on the specifics of the situation. You know, there are no hard and fast rules set in stone on this. Sometimes it's good to try to sort things out. Some other times it's good to just like, you know, hit the eject button. Every single individual situation has to be looked at, you know, as itself. So um, so that's why I get a little about, you know, what advice to give because it, it it's so context specific. But Henny, I I do hear you, and I understand that it is hard, and I I don't you know want that to continue for you. So maybe we can do something about that. Um. Okay. Let's see here. Ex Cyan, I know a good friend. Um. Yeah. Yeah. This the the talk radio stuff, the politics, all that. It can get bad. Oh, hey, Alex. Well, uh, glad you're here. Um, yeah, Henny, write me. Let's let's have an email. Let's uh, let's let's discuss this. Uh, yeah, Jelly Jenkins. Sorry about that. I, I mispronounced her name. Um, okay, Estonia. Hello. Um, okay, this is a good question. Ex Scientology asks in in trying to be a good person. And always put other people's benefit in front of your own. Will you be constantly noticed by the predators in our society and taken advantage of by them? Uh, not always, no. But depending on your sphere of influence and activity, yes, you will be a little bit of a magnet for people who may not, might not necessarily have your best interests at heart and want to use your good nature against you. And this is why. This is really why it is so important to be educated about these kind of personalities, how they act, what the red flags are, how you can spot it. And you you are under no obligation now or ever to be nice to somebody, to go out of your way to help them, to, um, to put yourself in their crosshairs. That is never an obligation that you have to another human being. You just don't. Okay, now um, family ties, especially children, when you have, you know, children who are kind of a little bit difficult, um, you know, yes, there are obligations there. But here we're talking about answering this question about attracting or being a magnet for these kind of toxic, horrible people. Um, you don't have to put up with that. And if you know these indicators or these red flags and can see them in people, you can confront them. You can deal with them. You can go, hey, this appears to be the case that you are saying one thing, but I'm kind of getting a little bit of a different idea. I, there's some passive aggressiveness here. There's, you know, you're saying or doing things that I don't like or I don't want, you know, to particularly have in my, in my world. Uh, you know, how, how, we sort, how do we sort this out? What are we going to do about this? And then you can find out through communication, is the person real or are, is there something, you know, suspicious or not so great or not above the boards going on? It, it, I'm, I'm big on communicating. I'm really big on, on laying the cards on the table and, and kind of having it out if there's a problem or an issue. I understand everybody's not that way. 
Um, if it's difficult or impossible for you to do that, then you're going to have to tailor your life around that kind of thing and just kind of not return their calls, maybe not, you know, acknowledge their, their, that toxic person's existence or, or sort of, you know, move away from, um, having them around, you know, you don't have to do the, you know, the full on let's, let's, uh, let's duke it out in the streets kind of confrontation. I'm not necessarily trying to suggest that approach. I'm just saying that if you see something, say something. And if it's and if it's legit, a red flag or a situation or a problem, then you can sort it out with communication. And if it doesn't sort, the person won't see it, refuses to see it, make, you know, turns it on on you, tries to gaslight you, then take appropriate action. You know, um, don't put up with that kind of thing. Being nice to people, being compassionate and tolerant to people is a choice you're making. And if somebody else is trying to take advantage of you, you can change your mind about that person <laughs> and go, you know, this, is, this isn't for me. Um, I try to give people lots of, um, lots of what's the chances, you know, uh, it's, it's not a one and done. People have bad days. People have bad moods. People have things happen to them that are out of your sight that affect them and can make them really ugly or do horrible things on a short term. So, you know, so try to also have a little bit of longer term judgment with the whole thing, too. Best advice I can give in a general nature there. But that's a good question. That is you don't you do not have to be anybody's whipping boy or girl. Um, okay, maybe I'm trying to be the only ones that are not a healthy love, I don't want to wake up wanting the world to hate them. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I got to talk more in the second part. <laughs> Thanks for that comment. Um, thank you guys for the podcast, uh, likes on that. Andre asks, Chris, do you think Scientology could ever peak again like it did in its golden years? Yes, absolutely, I do. Uh, easily. Um, if we forget, if we let this slide, if we let this go out of our memory and stop thinking about or putting our attention on Scientology and toxic groups like it, and we let our guard down, they're, they're, they, you know, they're going to keep going and they're going to keep trying to do what they're doing because that's what groups like that do. And they can rebrand, they could re, you know, uh, put themselves back out there under different pretenses or, or, or under different circumstances and appear to be a legit group and get some support and then build it all back up again. But the DNA of the group never changes. The toxicity of the group, the abusive nature of the group never actually changes because the policies and, and, uh, and you know, the core belief set of Scientology is a toxic, abusive belief set. So, uh, but yeah, absolutely, they can come back if we don't, if we let them. That's how, yeah, yeah definitely that could work. Um, okay. Did Big Blue ever close their doors? I don't know if they were actually ever fully shut down in Big Blue or not this last year. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I think that they were affected. And I was told that no Sea Org members were allowed to leave the base this whole last year. I mean, it was pretty crazy. So... All right. How we doing here? Um, oh, okay. Blank Bullet's asking a good question. 
what is the most successful slash generally recommended method of deprogramming cult members? Is there one or does it depend on the individual? It completely depends on the individual. And I mean completely. Every single person's experience is different and unique to them. How they're recruited, how they heard about it in the first place, what problem they're trying to solve, or what was the thing that drew them into the group in the first place. Was it... um, what did they come in through a family member, through a friend? Are they, you know, second gen versus first gen? Um, what their experience of it was, the geography of it, you know, um, the their previous culture and culturation, their previous religion, if they're getting involved in a religious group, moral systems, you know, how what what they came in with, what the moral system of the group is, how that affects their behavior, how deeply they get involved in it, how much responsibility they take for it, do they start working for the group or not? Do they go all in like I did and end up in the Sea Org? where their headspace is really all in on it. All of these things and a thousand other questions could come up that will change or modify or tune how you're going to deal with this person and what they're going to need to snap out of it and what emotional needs are they trying to fulfill and that need to be fulfilled for them. All of these, very, very unique for each person. So that is why there is no one-and-done um, sort of algorithmic model or, or formula for how to do this beyond the general ideas of education and enlightenment and um, you know, separation from the group for a while and, and getting the language out of their head and you know, all these different things that you have to do in order to um, you know, kind of get a person out of that headspace. Excuse me. And also out of the really what you're dealing with is a full identity package, you could say, or a full like personality that 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 the cult kind of creates with the person. That's a way of looking at it. There are other ways of looking at this too, but I really I, I think the um the personality or you know the sort of identity framing of what a cult does to a person for me it's very convenient and it and it makes a lot of sense to look at it through those that lens and so what you're doing is you're trying to either bring the person back to the personality they were sort of there that was really them before they got involved in the cult or at least stripping away from their identity or personality those factors that have become so toxic because of their involvement with the group um, narcissistic tendencies or ego, for example, can really get boosted beyond all, you know, tolerance <laughs> when you get involved in one of these groups. So, you know, stripping some of that away from the person, for example, and getting them to kind of come back down to earth and realize that, you know, they're good people and all that, but they aren't, you know, gods <laughs> like we would pretend we were when we were in Scientology. You know, that kind of stuff you want to deal with. So it's that's why it's going to be so different. Okay. Um, did I ever go to the LRH ex- exhibit in Hollywood? Yes, I did. Uh, yes, many times. Uh, it is, um, well, it's a visual 3D presentation of L. Ron Hubbard's hagiography. All right. Um, Christina asks, have you ever thought about reaching out to Alexis for an interview? I would love to hear from her poor woman. Um, Alexis. Alexis. 
I'm not sure who, which Alexis you're referring to there, Christina. I'm sorry. Um, I guess it was should be obvious, but I'm I'm not getting it. Um, Shimoda comment: Hagiographies are very common in cults. Yes, exactly, exactly, very. Um, superpowers. Okay, Shimoda asks: Did you hear about the house LRH lived in in London, England? Scientology keeping it as a museum and wanted a historical place plaque outside, but they got denied by the authorities. Oh, that's interesting. I did not know that they got denied that. They have been running around trying to get historical properties everywhere L. Ron Hubbard ever was, from Elizabeth, New Jersey, to the original um, uh, place in Wichita, to uh, to Arizona. Um, and, and there's a house that he had in South Africa that they have restored and they do this whole restoration thing and make it look and feel just like it was when he was there. And, you know, I, I don't know what they're doing this stuff for it. it it's something to put some money into that they can tell the IRS, see, we're, we're reinvesting in the church and stuff. Uh, anyway, that's, yeah, that's what I know about that. Um, Oh, thank you, Christina, for that very nice comment there. I really appreciate that. Um, okay, Jew Martins. Yes, good. Okay, question from Shimoda. What do you think are times people are most vulnerable to cults? When I joined one, I was living on my own for the first time with zero friends and lacking social skills looking back. Well, that's that's exactly it. Vulnerabilities, times that our emotional needs are not being fulfilled or met, times of trauma and stress, times of emotional or life changes, big, huge life changes, going off to college, losing a loved one, coming back from a war. Um, you know, times when our heads are in a vulnerable place are are times when we are most vulnerable of course, uh, to cultic influence or to specifically, here's the deal, right? What happens is the things that, that the, 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 the conditions of our lives, we grow up tolerating and learning and experiencing certain truths, certain realities that make up who and what we are. And we bring to that whatever genetic, you know, makeup that we have and tolerances and stuff like that, that are naturally who and what we are. We go through life finding our comfort zone, finding our place in the world, what we what we like to do, what we can do, how much random motion can we tolerate, how much, you know, work do we want to do versus how much play, this kind of stuff. You know, it's just kind of naturally who we are. Life in the course of living, will throw you these, you know, will throw ball bearings under your feet and you slip and fall, or it'll hit you over the head with an asteroid, or it'll knock you upside the head from time to time. Unexpectedly, things happen to you that you don't predict for. And a lot of the trauma and stress and anxiety we experience comes from the fact that we are experiencing something we didn't predict for and don't really know how to deal with. It's never been in our experience or in our toolkit to deal with this. And this is why we experience the feelings we feel that we call stress and trauma and, and longer-term anxiety. These aren't the only causes of this stuff, but this is one of the ways that it happens. And when that stress and trauma become too much, we feel 
like we're not in control, like we're not in charge, like we don't know what's going on or what the next thing for us to do should be to ensure a future that we want to see and experience. So this is where our emotional needs are not being fulfilled, so to speak, or we're we're traumatized, or we're we're wondering what to do, or we're in really unfamiliar territory. And when those things are happening to us is when we are vulnerable to needing, we're, we're vulnerable because we need some help. And there's nothing wrong with needing help. But if you reach for help from the wrong source, and you end up, you know, getting help from a cult or a destructive, you know, high control group, or a narcissist, abusive relationship, etc., then this is how you end up in these bad places, right? So uh, so the other thing about these instances in time, of course, is because of the stress and the trauma, the adrenaline is higher, the neurotoxin, you know, like the neuro, the, 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 the things, the brain is activated in certain fight or flight methods, or sorry, mechanisms, and we're not necessarily thinking super clearly either. And this is why, you know, giving yourself the golden rule of, Taking time to make major life decisions, not jumping on board anything without giving yourself two or three days to chill and think about it and let yourself really kind of cogitate on on things is one of the best rules we have for being able to avoid getting involved in one of these horrible situations in the first place. Because it gives you time to let your frontal lobes re-engage and think about what you're doing, you know. Anyway, I'm kind of going on at a mad rate there, but that's kind of the answer to the question. I, I, I hope that helps. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Christina, do I have any tattoos? Yeah, I got one right here. It says, it's chaos, be kind. And, um, and then I have this, this one right here. <laughs> I like to show them off sometimes. Hard, hardly ever get asked about them, so there you go. Okay, Teresa asks... Excuse me. Uh, I know LRH was known for adding the suffix N-E-S-S, Ness, to the ends of common words. Has anyone ever counted the words that LRH made up or edited to suit his rambling style? No, I don't know. I don't have a word count on that. But I can tell you that in the real world, there are two dictionaries of Hubbard terms, and they are both like thick, big, thick dictionaries. Hubbard created a lot of words. And the NESS thing also, uh, he made nouns out of all kinds of stuff. Thetan uh, was just, you know, adding the letter N to the word theta, and then you get a Thetan. Uh, then he used beingness, havingness, doingness, right? Be, do, have uh, were, are important words in Scientology. So he created beingness, doingness, and havingness, stuff like that, you know, just silliness. Silliness. Okay, uh, what kind of knowledge and secrets does Scientology have? Oh, Jew Martins asks, did you ever read Dune? If you did, do you think Paul had an actual choice? Uh, now, that is an interesting question. I did read Dune. I haven't read it since I was in high school. I read it when the David Lynch movie came out in the 80s. Hated the movie, liked the book. Um, I have seen one or two remakes of the Dune uh, there was that mini series that was on Sci-Fi years ago, that was you know that was okay. Um, 
Do I think Paul had an actual choice? No, not within the context and framework of the story and his moral code and the way he looked at the world. No, he didn't really have much of a choice in terms of um, the decisions that he made. Uh, I think I, you know, I, oh, it's complicated. That's a tough question to ask me here Um, because Dune is such a complicated story. Hmm. See, the tough one there for me is the moral problem, the moral quandary for me of Paul deciding to start this revolution against the emperor. And what that ended up doing was starting a jihad across the entire galaxy. And millions and millions and millions of people died as a result of this decision Paul made in order to keep his family in power and uh, overthrow the emperor's rule and keep his family going. So... Tough choices. It, there's a lot of there. You could have a whole video argument about that whole thing. I that's I don't know. I I'm I'm saying within the context of the story, no. But I I don't know that I would have made that choice. You know. Um, Mike asks me, why didn't you keep your Seer uniform? Because they wouldn't let me. They take it from you. <laughs> it's not my property. I guess I don't know. Um. On a lighter note, what do you daydream about? Have you had any notable sleep dreams you want to share with us? It's an interesting question. Um, I have had a lot fewer nightmares over the years. In fact, the last time I had anything like that in terms of uh, bad dreams about the Sea Org was many years ago. In terms of daydreams or lighter dreams... I don't know. I have weird dreams, so I don't think I really want to share any of them with you guys. <laughs> um, you know, weird like Willy Wonka kind of dreams, like just weird, goofy stuff. Nothing, nothing horrible. Um, I daydream about a better world. I, I, you know, about people getting along better and stuff. I, I, you know, I'm, I don't know. I'm a little silly with that. Uh, sorry, just. I don't know what to say. Oh, thank you, Couch, for that super chat. Very much appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I did not keep my Sea Org uniform. Sorry. <laughs> okay, let's carry on here. Sorry, one second. Okay, Gabriel asks, what would you suggest to an ex-Scientologist that is having a hard time recovering from the abuses they had in the cult, but was also abused as a child before joining the cult? I would recommend therapy if you can get it. That's what I would recommend. Um, I would recommend uh, education, psychoeducation, right? Education about psychology and, and trauma and stress and abuse and, and surviving that and figuring out how to deal with it and re sort of frame it as, you know, the experience that it was. And, you know, how do we move on from that? We all have to kind of figure out our own answers to those questions, but we can do so better if we understand the anatomy and nature of how this stuff works. And, and also, to a little bit of a degree, you know, understanding abusers and abuse and stuff, but really more understanding what trauma is, why it, why it affects us, you know, that's the psychoeducation component, but really just getting a chance to talk 
And maybe, you know, there's there's cognitive behavioral therapy, there's trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, there's emotion-focused therapy. There's a lot of different ways to tackle these issues. Um, but what I would suggest to an ex-Scientologist is, you know, swallow or deal with whatever problems you might have with psychology and psychiatry, maybe as a first order of business, and get some counseling. That's what, that's what I would recommend with somebody who has actual child abuse and, and physical violent abuse in their past. Uh, Alexis Hubbard. Oh, you were talking about, oh, got it. Yes. Okay, Christina, I get the context now. I just wasn't sure who you were mentioning when you were talking about Alexis. Yeah, I would love to have, I think Alexis is uh, Hubbard's granddaughter. Uh, and yes, I would love to interview her. Uh, I, I think she's not at all interested in doing anything like that, though. Um, okay. All right. Almethia Moon. What do you think Scientology thinks of COVID? Are clear people considered immune? Can they not follow safety protocols? Are people who get blamed for contracting it? Get it blamed for contracting it. Um, okay. Well, you know, we've certainly, um, yeah. No, they don't think that they're immune, although they do think that they have a higher degree of tolerance or immunity than your regular Joe or Sally Sue. Scientologists do think of themselves as immune to diseases and, and accidents and stuff, except for the fact that they can get PTS, this label they give themselves when they think that they are um, connected to some hostile or antagonistic source, uh, you know, some person invalidating them, giving them a hard time, stuff like that. Um, that they think that is what lowers their shields, you know, and hurts their ability, their spiritual powers, somebody coming up and, and, and giving them a hard time or, or, or antagonizing them. So, um, anyway, yeah, they follow safety protocols. They kept their churches clean and all that and boarded up. Um, but they think of, you know, they just think that the reactive mind is the big problem and that's what really needs to be solved. Okay. I have not seen the Louis Theroux documentary on Joe shooting Joe Exotic. I will probably skip that, actually. I'm not super interested in, in, in that one. Um, we'll see. I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. Thanks, Alex, for that super chat. Thank you very much for that. Appreciate it. Um, Yeah, I don't know what's going on with uh, John Travolta these days. You're right. He's been a little quiet. I think he's just doing his work. Um, okay. Finally figured out how to do a super chat. Thanks, Alex. Okay, let's see here. Um, da, 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 very verbal. Da, 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 da. Yes, Invader Zim. <laughs> Yes. All right. Um, do I ever dream about Elrond? No. I have not ever had a dream that had Elrond Hubbard in it. That's interesting. No, never have. Uh, let's see. Um, all right. Going up the line here. Just trying to make sure I'm not missing anything. There we go. Okay, Baka Rat says, on the OT levels, they always talk about the Xenu story as Incident 2. 
Did you have to learn the other incidents? And if so, in brief, what were they about? Oh, yeah, no, there's just other one other one. On OT3, you have incident one and incident two. Incident two is, yes, the Xenu narrative. Incident one is uh, the entry into the physical universe by Thetans. In other words, all of us as spiritual entities first entered the physical universe four quadrillion years ago. There was a thunderclap and there was a trumpet blare from, and there were cherubs and trumpets and a lightning crack and a flash of light. And here we were in the physical universe of matter, energy, space, and time. And we have never been the same since. And that is incident one. And that is as close to uh, as far as I know, that's the closest Hubbard ever came to where we came from and when we came here. There is no real knowledge about where we came from, though, except to say there was a breakaway from the main body of Theta, whatever that means. Your guess is as good as mine. That is literally all there is. So at least that I know of and could find in all the years I was in Scientology. So if I ever find more, I will let you guys know. But that's uh, that's it. That's incident one. Okay. Um, before we're gonna uh, Scientology. Oh, here's an interesting, very technical question. Ex-Scientologist asks, I co-audited an out-of-wedlock pregnant young woman on Method 4 word clearing who had a Scientology couple pay for her professional auditing if she gave them her baby. Does that happen often? No. <laughs> I've never heard of that happening even once in Scientology. Uh, but apparently that that happened. So, yeah, that's just surrogate mothers, I guess. And uh, um, I guess it could happen in Scientology as much as it happens anywhere else. But I've never I never heard about that before. Um, Blank Bullet asks, I heard Tony Ortega mentioning that David Miscavige is afraid of being near children and getting infected by their N theta. Do you know anything about that? Yes, I do. Uh, Mark Headley is actually the source of that information, and he is a former Gold staff member, and he had a spectacular escape, and he wrote a book called Blown for Good, and he's been on my show, and we've done we've done shows together, and he said that specifically David Miscavige is terrified of children because their body thetans will jump onto him, and he'll be infected by their body thetans. Now... I've never heard, you know, this this business of body thetans jumping from one to another person is not necessarily covered in the materials that I ever read about. Uh, maybe it's in there somewhere in some deep area that I missed, but I, I think this is, you know, kind of goofy and possibly joking. I, I don't really know if, if Mark said that in seriousness or not, but that's what I know about that, about that David Miscavige fear of, of kids. And it is goofy. It's very goofy. Um, okay, let's see here. Da, 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 da. Yeah, that Murder Among the Mormons was an interesting documentary, wasn't it? Uh, okay, calling for a while. Can't going. Love your. Had so many questions. How to educate kids on this? Oh, Vicki Wells. Yes. Um, yes, thank you, Vicki, for your nice words there. And as far as educating kids on critical thinking, well, commenter Christina here has a little bit of knowledge on that too. 
And this is something that we need to be working on all the time at home, at school, everywhere. I mean, kids need to be learning how to, they need to be learning judgment. And this is something that takes time, years, in fact, and it has to be done in the right way at the right times to get the maximal amount of of this knowledge across to kids in such a way that they get it and will use it. Um, and it's hard because kids, you know, short attention span, short interest levels, you know, there's, there's challenges, all kinds of challenges there. But, um, but yeah, we definitely want to get these skills across to kids as quickly as we can. We leave it up until college at this point to really dive into critical thinking skills that kids need. And we should be hitting that a lot earlier in their education. Okay, let's see what else we got here. We're going to move toward wrapping up here soon, folks. So um, I am trying to get caught up. Um, oh, yeah, Shimoda asks, is MN Critical Thinking your legit site? Just making sure not a Scientology hate site. Yes, mncriticalthinking.com has been and always will be my blog, my website. Um, the MN Critical Thinking, it's from Minnesota. I was originally living in Minnesota after I left the Sea Org, and I called myself the Minnesota Critical Thinker. And then I left Minnesota. <laughs> so I was like, now what? And I'd already registered the domain, and I've never changed it, so it's mncriticalthinking.com. All right, let's see here. Um, do I think there's a higher percentage of COVID cases among people in cult groups than the general population? I would not actually be able to answer that question. I I could see it going both ways. See, cults are kind of, you know, more isolated, more in, you know, kind of keeping to themselves. So maybe there's less chance of COVID, and yet destructive cults have for the most part eschewed rules and regulations about masks and authority and all of that. And so they have not been following safety protocols or guidelines very closely. So they do make themselves more susceptible. So which one's got more of an effect on the overall population of cult members? I don't know. I, I couldn't say. Fascinating, though. It might be an interesting study. Um, okay. Yes, I see these conversations with Henny going here. Abraham Lincoln asks, are celebrities coached to say the same things? Find out for yourself. Read a book. It works for me. Yes, they are. These are lines that are given to them by the church, and they are drilled, and they practice saying this stuff. Every celebrity that you see who is a Scientologist, who is talking about Scientology, is doing so after they have had hours and hours of coaching and practice at how to talk about it and how to field questions and answer and no answer, not answer questions. I'll make it look like they answered it even though they really didn't. Um, this, is a, this is definitely something that they practice. Yes. Okay. Um, yes. Uh, okay, cool. Yeah. Critical thinking cards. That's the spirit. Okay, good. That's right. Teach people how to think, not what to think. That's right. Okay. Um, what's the craziest fair game OSA has ever done to you? Spam Collector is asking me. 
Um, I think, like I said on the podcast with Leah and Mike, they tried to buy my channel. That was the wildest thing that's happened to me is having Scientologists reach out to me and offer me money to shut down my YouTube channel. And then making it such an insultingly small amount of money. I mean, come on. You know, I, my, 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 my rights are worth a lot more than a few thousand dollars. Um, okay, let's see here. I, Henny's asking about my second part of my podcast with Mike and Leah. I do not know the release schedule on that. I think it'll probably be sooner than later, but I'm not, it'll probably be in the next few weeks, but I, that's totally a guess on my part. I'm not sure what their, um, what their agenda is. Uh, okay. Let's see here. Can't run my head around the fact that Elizabeth Moss. Yeah, I can't either. Elizabeth Moss is frustrating to me. But remember, Blank Bullet, Elizabeth Moss is a second-generation Scientologist. Most of her life, she hasn't had any other context except Scientology. And um, and that's the situation there. Okay, and... Um, <laughs> okay, because this is a good good one to wrap up on. Gabriel uh, asks me, because the planet continues to go downhill, how is it that Scientology can boast about clearing the planet when they're becoming less and less known and effective? It's, I wish I had a better explanation for how delusory people can be about their own worldview, about their groups, about the effectiveness of their groups. We can really see the world almost any way we want to. And, and it's called motivated reasoning. I mean, it's a, there's, there's a term for this. And when you're in a group that is that you are investing so much of your time and emotion and, 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 your, and your mental health into, you know, like Scientology, like a religion. You need to see a return on investment. You have to see, you have to make yourself perceive that what you're doing with your life is worthwhile, that it matters, especially when you're involved in a group that is about social change and making a difference like Scientology is. That is, they are big on that. It's not a, it's not a passive group. And they, uh, so they attract people to it who want to make a difference, who want to make change, who want to see the world be a different way than it is. So between these two factors, you're going to get people who are susceptible to being conned and, you know, have the, the whole emotional needs thing and who then need to see this return on investment. Okay. And so they're going to, they're going to use what's called confirmation bias to only see things in the world that match up with how they want to see the world. You know, if I want this to be a Star Wars universe, if I want to believe in the reality of Star Wars, then these two guys here are going to be very real to me. I'm going to see them. They're going to stand out in my vision. My Marvel superhero guys might not be so prominent in my vision, in my perception, in, my, in, in how I interpret and see the world. 
I, I will I will not necessarily not see them. My brain will process that those things exist, but it won't hit me at the same degree of importance as my Star Wars guys. You see, I'm a stupid analogy, but you guys get the point. It actually it actually affects how we see things, how we hear things, and then how we thereby go about thinking about the world. It's it's crazy that it's that way, that we are that way, that, that we don't see objective reality. We see the reality that we kind of want to see in, in, a, in a way, you know, and I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, I don't want to go too far, you know, out, out the world there with that, but that's kind of how that works. Okay, so that all being the case, I think we're going to have to wrap up here. Ha! I will say that Jenna Elfman's full of shit. <laughs> The drama is boring, she says, about Scientology. That's exactly the kind of crap Jenna Elfman would say. She is probably, I, I think if there is a Scientology celebrity in denial about the dangers and abuses of Scientology, it would be Jenna Elfman. She is a world-class denialist. Uh, so anyway, there you go with that one. All right, guys. Thanks for coming around. Thanks for your super chats. Thanks for your support. Thanks for watching the show. I, oh, 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 let me wrap up with this because I wanted to say this at the beginning and I totally spaced on it because I, I wanted to get to your questions. Last week in the Q&A, I ranted a little bit about, you know, ah, I want people to watch my stuff. I want to get more people watching my stuff, right? And and I do that from time to time, and there's nothing, and I, and I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, uh, apologizing for doing that. But I did want to say that my 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 gratitude shows this week were a little bit of my thinking about and and looking and reflecting on, you know, how lucky I am, and how amazing it is that I have the support of you guys out there on this show and on this channel. And I sometimes can forget in the, my moments of frustration how lucky I am and how amazing this actually is. And I wanted to kind of throw that out there too to let you guys know I do know that. <laughs> and and so, you know, my effort here is to help as many people as I can in the short amount of time that I've got to do this. You know, our lives being short, in other words, right? And um, and so sometimes you know, I have this goal, and I want to do things, and I want to I want to make a big impact out there, and I want to help as many people as I can, and that's where that stuff comes from. And I think everybody who watches me knows that. And sometimes I'm a little slow coming to my own party on some of that stuff. So I wanted to say that out loud. Again, thanks for watching, guys, and I will um, see you guys. Uh, next week. All right. Great comments, guys. Bye-bye.